Hey, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another edition of the Corner Store Podcast. I'm your host, Kevin Koval. As always, we are recording for WGN Radio, and you can tune in to the podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Uh, please tell a friend to tell a friend. We've been having some really great episodes on here, and today is no different. Uh, we have in the Corner Store, y'all, a, a incredible historian, a writer, an advocate for writers, one of the co-founders of the Museum of Graffiti down in the Wynwood area in, in the great city of Miami, Florida. We have Alan Kett in the building. Sir, thank you so much for uh, hopping on a Zoom call and being with us this afternoon. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Yeah, man. No, it's it's an honor, man. And, you know, there's there's a lot to talk about with you. You know, you have a, a uh, you know, long and storied history in this forum, but you know, this new venture with the Museum of Graffiti is, is a decent place to start. If you can tell us kind of what it is and, and how you came about uh, co-founding this uh, very important establishment. Sure. So what it is, it's a museum dedicated to, to writing and to this graffiti art form, so to speak. And uh, it's the first of its kind, or maybe it's not the first of its kind, because I know Martin Wong started one or tried to get one off the ground in 1989 in New York City, but it's the only one that exists today, and the only one that existed, has existed since 89, when he also shut it down. And so, it's what you would expect out of a museum, exhibitions, education, presentations, history, ephemera, uh, a space where we celebrate this art form the artists that have made it happen the pioneers the moments all that stuff and everything in between and i came to do this it's sort of a dream you know i i uh imagined myself doing this or contributing to something like this for some time now i always felt that this art form this movement was overlooked by institutions by museums by galleries Uh, And it became more clear to me as I ended up getting older and participating in curating museum shows around the world. I noticed that they would always be the best selling exhibitions or shows, but the institutions would never collect the artwork. It was very um, transactional for them and very temporary. They really had no stake in it other than making money off of it. Uh, and sort of, you know, taking advantage of the hype that it might bring them. And so anyway, so I moved down to Miami uh, three years ago to be the director of of the galleries at the Wynwood Walls. And for those who don't know, the Wynwood Walls is a street art uh, mural park in the Wynwood neighborhood and it's and it's the reason why the Wynwood neighborhood exists as it does today it's uh, was founded by Tony Goldman uh, who had a vision of transforming a neighborhood into an arts district or a mural district and he did that and Wynwood walls became sort of ground zero for that so you know they pursued me I came down uh, worked there and got to really learn about the Wynwood neighborhood, which I only knew a little bit about coming down to paint once a year during our Basel or, or when I would slide through Miami, Wynwood would be one of the places that I would touch down in to paint. Uh, and But being in Wynwood for a year, 
on the ground speaking to thousands and thousands of people and seeing the the millions of visitors that would come to this location it really opened up my eyes to an opportunity um you know and that opportunity was around education around you know diving deeper into this culture and giving those visitors more than just the selfie moment or the photo moment and so you know i was fortunate enough to meet uh my my co-founder uh, Allison Frieden it at the Windwood Walls through artists and sort of connect uh and we started to build on this idea because she had a passion for art and understood Windwood and would come around and we would we, we would chat and one thing led to another and you know we took the plunge and decided to just to do it and rather than waiting uh for you know billionaire philanthropists to do it or for other museums to kind of get involved and do it you know i took the graffiti writer uh and or my own sort of way of doing things which is to roll up my sleeves and just do it and so we we jumped into it and did it and so far it's been uh about 9 months that we've been in operation which is it's been very good and and also very uh interesting and hectic as a result of covid and having to close for two of those months but but we're open and we are greeting people daily and, and we're uh we're doing the work that we want to do that's great man so what does it mean to be open in the time of covid for you guys what how does that alter who's able to be in the building and things of that nature sure so open in the time of covid we have a city that is you know pretty strict and has implemented some guidelines and some uh some codes that we have to abide by to open and so it means that we have to adhere to to, to those standards or those you know sort of quality control standards or and so it's it's everybody wears a mask inside the building all the visitors have to wear a mask in order to enter the building uh there's you know sanitation stations things like that there's constant cleaning going on there's timed tickets so we only allow uh six tickets uh basically six people at a time to go through and so for social distancing and so we have uh we're able to to let in six people every 15 minutes or so to allow for that social distancing we try to do even less than that typically to allow for more sort of comfort for for folks and uh yeah and so that that's kind of what it means to be open and greeting visitors during this sort of uh, time of covid and most museums uh in this city are not open i think it's only one of them that's open actually yeah. besides us and so you know it's it's no one wants to be a hot spot no one wants to risk themselves their employees uh and and their their well-being you know we as a small institution were closed for 2 months when the city went into quarantine and that was fine uh but the moment that we were allowed to open up we 
spoke to staff and sort of got everybody's uh, buy-in on whether or not they wanted to participate and open up if they felt comfortable to do that. And so everybody did. And we opened up. And we've been, you know, we've been very fortunate that none of the, our staff has fallen ill and that, you know, everybody's healthy and, and, and good. 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 Well, that's good to hear, man. Um, so I want to I want to posit a, a question um, and I, I, I'm curious as to, to your understanding of it. Um, you know, my understanding of Wynwood uh, is that obviously it is a it's a it's a area that was mostly like um, you know primarily maybe like an industrial area. Maybe go, this is going on ten or more years ago. Just you know, in proximity to uh, a historically black neighborhood in in Miami, Overton or Overtown, um, uh, and then at some point, you know, I remember like hearing of writers specifically you know you know getting up and and kind of running wild in that space and 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 eventually um to my understanding it attracted uh what might be considered street art uh, more formal murals some galleries um <clears throat> basel started to make a play in in that space and then it it kind of rapidly gentrified uh so it's interesting now that you know you know you you know, a, a storied writer, um, and we'll, we'll get to your history in a moment, has kind of come to ensure that the story of graffiti will be told in a space that I wonder if some of that narrative is lost in uh, traditionally. Yeah, you, you pretty much nailed it on, on the history of Wynwood. Wynwood uh, is a very important neighborhood in the history of graffiti, of writing in Miami. Wynwood has today the oldest living graffiti mural mm. dating back to the 80s. The, mm. the, the oldest piece of, of writing history is in the neighborhood. People don't really know it. It's there. Writers know it. Some of them don't know it. And kind of in the hood and the cut. And Wynwood is one of, if not the first neighborhood to have actually uh, writing and graffiti flourish in it. You know, and people say, well, why is that? One of the reasons is that Wynwood is a historically Puerto Rican neighborhood. And so beyond the factory area, beyond the warehouse area, is a community. Beyond the factory area is, is a community. That community is or has been a Puerto Rican community. And so as a result of that, when in the 80s, when the quote unquote bad kids, <laughs> when the bad kids were sent down to right. stay with their aunties and their grandmothers, guess what? They landed in places like Wynwood. Right. And so the when we did our research, the rapper Thurston Howell III. Woo! Let's go. Used used to write. Him and his brother used to write in New York City. And in 1982, they were sent down here to stay with their grandmother in Wynwood on Northwest 25th Street. Um, between Northwest 25th Street and Northwest 26th Street, I believe. Uh, and Northwest First Avenue, which is exactly a block and a half or two blocks from the museum. And so that's where they lived. 
years later, he would throw his parties during our Basel at that house, at his grandmother's house. And so where he lived and where he went to, uh, where he lived in the 80s. And so when he went to school in the 80s, down here, a few blocks away in Wynwood, he showed up as a graffiti writer with black books, with his style, with his swag. And he met a guy named Max. Max said, hey, I want to learn to do what you're doing and what you're about. Like, who are you? What is this? And Max uh, got down with these two brothers and started painting. Max became the writer named Seam, one of the founding fathers of Miami's writing movement. And so the rest is history. And so within this neighborhood, there was that. There was the Puerto Rican community. There was Thurston Howell III. There was Max, a.k.a. Seam. There was a place called the Bakehouse Art Complex. Now, the Bakehouse Art Complex was this old bakery that got turned into an artist residency place. It got bought out by these sort of progressive hippies, artists from Coconut Grove in Miami, and they built this great place for artists. That place faced I-95 Highway. High visibility walls, high visibility rooftops. It became the place to paint uh, ever since back then. And it was the most visible and most important place to paint at the time. And so that attracted other people from around the city and attracted other transplants from New York, from Connecticut, from other places to come and paint the bakehouse. And so that really made Wynwood something. So Wynwood was something in this art movement before the Wynwood Walls, the Bakehouse Art Complex was really the epicenter then. And that place is in the residential part of the neighborhood. Uh, And so very, very different from what it is today. Fast forward 12 years ago, you know, this neighborhood, only writers would come and paint here. And you kind of had to have a pass. It's a tough neighborhood. You don't want to get your paint taken. You don't want to get robbed. There was really there no reason for you to come here unless you maybe knew Seam or you knew VO5 crew, his crew back then. But that started to change. Writers started to come into the neighborhood uh, and paint here. And it was only local writers. But all these warehouses were open canvases. And so local writers from TCP crew, mm. in particular Typo and his boys, started a thing called Primary Flight. And Primary Flight was like a graffiti jam where they invited writers and they had lots of walls to paint. And that sort of started the ball rolling. The word got out. Writers started to get invited to come down. These guys started to see an opportunity to work with businesses and developers and people that wanted to have their warehouses painted. And that sort of took off. Then came the bigger developers, the people that you know built the Windward Walls. They saw that. I said, oh, we can do what these graffiti kids are doing. Let's do it, but let's call in a New York big shot. And so they called in Jeffrey Deitch, a big New York gallerist who called in international street artists to come in. And, 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 and then the gentrification ball started to roll. But in, in, in that beginning period of time, this was a gallery district. I remember coming here 
uh, about 12 years ago uh, for that early primary flight stuff. And there were lots of galleries around, or maybe not lots, there were a few, and then they started to, to, to grow and grow. And then there was a really, uh, truly a gallery district here where there were uh, dozens, if not 50 galleries everywhere, and artist studios and all that kind of stuff. That doesn't exist anymore. We are going through a period of time where Wynwood is no longer an arts district. It has lots of street art murals. It has graffiti, pieces, burners. There are barely any galleries. There might be three, if that. Wow, right. Uh, so that those, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 galleries that were here are gone. There are barely any artists living in the neighborhood. They've been pushed out or priced out. Most of those places have been demolished. And now we have a neighborhood that's been developed to become a residential uh, neighborhood with huge buildings and then also huge office buildings. So we have a giant, you know, we have WeWork here as an example and those kind of places. You know, we have the fanciest, you know, restaurants in Miami are in this neighborhood. And so it's definitely been gentrified. There's nightclubs here. There's, you know, bars here. None of that stuff is open. And so there's a huge gentrification wave coming. Uh, The developers and the landowners love it. Some of them don't love it, you know, as much as others. It depends on how much money we're talking about and who's cashing out when. Right. But all that development uh, leads for big glass buildings that don't have or barely have any art and really doesn't make it a a neighborhood that's so inviting to tourists that want to walk around and see it. I mean, we're not there yet where there's no reason to come here. There's still hundreds of walls to visit and walk around and see but it's hundreds where before it might have been almost you know a thousand right. pieces of art on the street well it's a lost uh, opportunity there's still nothing else like it yeah there's still nothing else like it yeah. in miami right there's barely anything else like it anywhere else so it's still very special you know we exist in this neighborhood we are on on the same block as the Wentwood walls okay we are here to educate people about the history of this neighborhood the history of this art movement who the people are on the walls the styles all those things and the reason why we're on this main block is to capture so to speak these tourists and give them the lesson that they are hungry to receive that's great man well look i I appreciate the, the 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 gems you you dropped and the stories you told and um to get you to move to miami must have been a big Deal because I you know I know you as a uh, as an East Coast writer you ha- you've had a and continue to have a prolific career as an artist. Um, I, I want to go back to your history. I mean, when did you start to get into writing? I, I discovered writing. You know, my history. You know, most people don't know this, but I was a kid like Thurston Howell the Third that bounced between Miami and New York. Oh, okay. You know, I was born in New York. My parents divorced. My mother and my family moved to Miami. Uh, I moved to Miami at like seven years old. Uh, I got tired of Miami. I moved back to New York in 1982. And so moving back to New York in 1982, I discovered graffiti. 
it was everywhere. I moved to Brooklyn. I moved. I was born in Queens. I moved to Brooklyn, and in Brooklyn, I discovered the trains, the walls. My neighborhood was Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and it was a bit of a war zone uh, with you know a few gangs, but with a lot of abandoned buildings. It looked like those photos that you see of the South Bronx in the eighties. My neighborhood was exactly the same. When you look at Martha Cooper's photos, yeah. her photos are not of the South Bronx. People confuse it. They're mm. actually of Williamsburg, Brooklyn, mm. and the Lower East Side of Manhattan. All these neighborhoods that you know look the same. There was poverty, abandoned buildings, buildings that were burned on, on purpose. So I moved into a neighborhood like that that was filled with writers and tags, but it was also filled with burners and pieces by some local artists and I fell in love with that stuff uh, by the time I got to high school I met writers that were more serious that were still into it that hadn't crossed over to do something else or dropped out or whatever and I got really into it so in high school I really fell in love with it having to ride the trains every single day seeing the works uh, you know, of writers like Scene in particular and Webb and Doc uh, and Dondi and and all, all these writers and I fell in love with it and that's when I started to get into it I started first photographing it I wanted to sort of capture these things that I was seeing and uh, I, I very, very you know in 1986 is when I was really lost my mind with it and uh, and, and was really very actively uh, chasing trains around and really, and really getting into it. And I went to school with an, uh, an artist named Ben, V-E-N, who would become one of my partners. Uh, he was a year or two younger than me, but he was, his older brother had been painting trains. He was like a king of the trains. Mm. And Ben was painting trains. And that's it. I was, I was in. And I started painting trains then, and it never stopped, really. You know, I just kept painting and got into it. Um, how, how did you... How did, how did you go from photographing to painting? Did Ven just suggest that you start writing, or did did you pick it up yourself? No, I was. By the time I met Ven, I was already writing. Okay, you know, I was already like on my block. Like the way most kids start is they first they start. You know, I grew up in the projects, and so kids start off maybe tagging in the staircases, and then they get the nerve up to go behind the building, and then they get the nerve up to go across the street. You know, you sort of start to grow into the community. And so, you know, I had the similar trajectory, my building across the street, two blocks away, the bus stop, now the to the inside of the train, to abandoned, abandoned places, you know, along train lines and train tracks to practice, and then finally getting the nerve to go to paint trains. And so I started painting with kids from my high school that were into it even before then I started painting with kids in my high school kids on my block you know tagging with kids on my block um, and then uh, and then by the time I started painting trains I started painting with with, uh, with the crews that I still rep today I started painting with Ben and Reese and Ghost and and it was the Risk crew RIS crew and AOK crews uh, I started painting with them before I got down with them. I just would go and hang out and paint. Um, but I would, you know, I ended up, you know, being very bold. Uh, and I guess I would go by myself to the trains and, you know, I would bump into these guys that were my friends or became my friends. 
And then I just started painting with them. They invited me to paint with them, so I would go paint with them versus just going by myself. Yeah, wow. Um, you've you've maintained a practice for a long time, and I, I want to talk about that. But how did you come to take on uh, the gnome de plume, your 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 moniker? You know that the funny thing about about coming up with a name in the eighties, uh, I I thought it was very difficult. And the reason why it was very difficult is because there were thousands of writers in the city at the time, like literally thousands of writers on my block, the next block, the next, you know, everywhere you go, it was filled with names. The walls were covered. You know, every time you think that you thought of a great name or that I thought of a great name, I would see it, you know, like the next day on a wall somewhere. And because I traveled around a lot, I had exposure to a lot of names. And one of the things that I learned early on is that you don't want to take somebody else's name. That's a pro- That's a problem. Yeah. Right. It's a reason to get into a fight. It's a reason to just you know ha- have drama. And so, you know, the names that I was picking for myself, I kept changing pretty much weekly because I would see them. And so, in the lunchroom, in my in my lunchroom sessions with the other writers from my school. I posed this dilemma. And so we came up with random letters, K-E-T. And the reason why these letters sort of made sense to our young selves at the time was because some of the kings of the trains had the the last letters E-T. So at the time, one of the kings of the inside that actually had gone to my high school was Net, and he was everywhere. The guy that took over from Net after he retired was Bet, B-E-T. And there was guys that wrote Set, C-E-T. And all, all, so, so I was like, I'm just going to take, give me, I'm going to put a letter in there that makes sense. So I became K-E-T. So it's in the tradition of these Brooklyn writers, Net and Bet, that I became Ket. Nice. And oh, of my. course, yeah. very little while later, I saw that there was another Ket, you know, like, and then, but by then, I was like, I'm, I'm just not doing it. I can't keep changing names, and so I stuck with it. And those other versions of me, the other cats, uh, didn't last very long because you know one of the things that that existed in the '80s, and I'm guessing also in the '70s, is that writers or kids, young boys, would write graffiti for a summer. It was a summer thing to do. And the next summer you discovered baseball or basketball or girls or, you know, crack. And you moved on to the next sort of trend or fad. And so for many writers, uh, it was a fad. And so the other cat that existed from Park Slope was one of those guys. The other cat that existed somewhere else was one of those guys. They just lasted a summer and I outlasted them, and those people, no one remembers them for maybe me. Um, but, you know, I was I was one of the guys, much like all my crew members, that didn't look at this as a, a summer uh, activity. We call those people summer sensations or overnight sensations or something, you know? Right. And... You know, we weren't that. We were we were committed to this to this art form, and we understood it as a bigger thing outside of our neighborhoods, but as a as a citywide art movement that had a an old tradition 
uh, and real roots in history. Yeah, you you lived through that moment where the MTA started to crack down uh, on writers, on writing on the trains specifically, and you maintained a practice. Um, how did you? How did your practice begin to evolve after kind of the eradication of being able to? Right, you know, making it you know damn near impossible to write on the train, and also increasing the criminalization of of the you know of of writing. Yes, I, that was that was a very unfortunate thing for us to go through. <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, for for me as as a young writer um, who had been studying the movement, who fell in love with this art form and became a student of it uh, in May of nineteen eighty nine. The, the New York City Transit Authority took out the last train that was the last bombed train out of service and finished their, their sort of, um, I don't know how long it was, six, seven, eight year program to, to remove all those trains from service from, from the whole city and install new trains. When they did that, they came up with a new policy that stated that they would not allow for any uh, trains that had been written on to run in service. And so that meant that basically it was a clean, a graffiti-free system. And so that happened at the, at the height of my career, at the height of, of my cruise sort of activity. We had been painting for a few years really uh, aggressively and were, were sort of the kings of the trains uh, of which trains, by the way, if I, if I can ask? At, at, that, at that point, because they were cleaning all the train lines, we moved from train line to train line. Okay. And so before that, most riders, the way that it worked is most riders painted their own home train line. Right. right? It was so easy. You didn't have to go very far. You'd go to the closest place to your house and typically would paint that train line. Um, and that way you could see it and all the friends could see it and everybody could see it. You were like a hometown hero, a neighborhood hero, so to speak. Uh, the writers that did more than that were exceptional. They were to be revered and talked about. And so they might have gone and painted two train lines or and then the really exceptional writers painted all of them. And so by the time we started painting, uh, the train lines were changing. And so more and more of them were becoming clean. And so... By the time I was painting, uh, the number one line was already clean. The number seven line was already clean. The number six line was was being cleaned. Uh, the F line was already clean. And so I started painting on my home line. And then I started painting any line that had uh, trains that we could bomb. And so that was the J line, the M line, the D line, the Q line, the, the five, all, all of them. Right. The B line. We, we, as a crew, we moved around the A-line. We moved around and painted all of them because riders were sort of disappearing. So when these train lines were clean, um, most of the riders from that train line quit. It was too much to go cross city to paint for most people. They, they lost their spot. There was no reason to paint. They wouldn't see their work running. And so they just quit. And so by the time 1988 came around, the people that were still painting were, were diehards that were willing to travel around the city to still paint trains. These were dedicated writers, people like Wayne and Sento and Ghost 
uh, writers like Dome and and Van and others, they moved around the city. So wherever they had to paint, they painted. And so I was part of that sort of movement. So by 1989, when they finally cleaned the trains, we felt that we were uh, dealt a, a pretty severe blow and we took it pretty personal. And we said, hey, we're part of this movement that is 19 years old or 20 years old. We cannot allow it to die on our watch. Hmm. And we're not going to let that happen. And so we went, ham. <laughs> you know, we decided that we obviously we wouldn't stop painting, that we were at war with the MTA to save graffiti. Uh, we and we adapted to it. And so we start we you know, at first we start we kept painting, you know, big, colorful things. But then we realized in order to, for it to be possibly run in service or to make a dent and to bring it back, we had to use more, uh, you know, vandal tactics, so to speak. And so it really became about tags. It really became about throw ups. It really became about quantity uh, of of the painting so that we if we're going to go into a train yard, don't go into a train yard to ride on one train right on every uh-huh. single train yeah. spend as much time as you can in there uh and sort of quote unquote destroy the system yeah and so and so our our way of of, of approaching it uh almost devolved so to speak so went from style writing and burners even though we would do them from time to time to planning out missions much like some writers did back in the days of only tagging on the insides of trains and so you know back in the days there were writers that only did that they never went to the outside they only wrote on the inside so we you know did a lot of that because it was tougher to clean uh and it was i guess more warlike well it's and i think that's a good way to kind of think about it because it's certainly a resistance movement right i mean all of this resource is being leveled against a a bunch of young artists um you know for what purpose i'm not i'm not sure but i mean is that how you all talked about it did you talk about it in these warlike resistance yeah 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. it was it was a total resistance it was all war you know and we were at i mean we wrote it on the trains at war with the mta you know, we were at war with the system. We are at war with the authorities. We are at war with the police. We would write. I would write things about the police directly. I would find out their names and I would write about them to piss them off. You know, they they started to uh, conduct surveillance in all our homes. As a result, they would call us. They would harass our parents, our families, and so we just like they went. We took that like they were doing something very personal. And so we decided to make it personal back. Hmm. And so we wrote about them and their families and all kinds of They must not have liked know, that, jokes. I imagine. They must they not did, have appreciated it. They did not like that. Yeah. But, you know, they're, they're, uh, it, we wrote about someone like um, Stephen Mona, one of the, one of the sergeants. Uh, and we write all kinds of nasty jokes and terrible things about him, you know, whatever. Uh, and his wife and whatever whoever we could possibly throw under the bus um, his uh, co-workers found that to be very comical and very funny and so it was it was it was pretty interesting for us to be in this sort of cat and mouse game with these police 
Um, but we took it. We took it very serious, as serious as they took it yeah. trying to arrest us. We took it that we wanted to avoid arrest, and we wanted to continue to paint, and we wanted to have this movement continue to exist and matter. And we did it for as long as we could be these um, these anarchist uh, sort of uh, you know resisting artists. You know, you know we resisted work. We resisted, you know, all, all kinds of things, but we, we definitely were very consciously uh, trying to continue this movement and uh, and not let it die on our watch. Yeah. Um, to what extent were you successful in evading the police? We, we, we did okay. We did okay. I mean, over the years, we all got arrested at some point. Um, you know, normally it was sort of fabricated charges where they said that they saw you doing something, but it never actually happened. They just actually encountered you and arrested you and said that they saw you writing. So that was pretty common. Uh, I don't remember. Well, I, I was never caught painting a train. Um, and so, you know, but, you know, there, it, there was... You know, in those in during the eighties, the penalties for painting were pretty, um, you know, light. You know, it was uh, community service. You know, maybe a, a small fine, and so probably, you know, I, you know, I got caught back then and and had to pay a fine, and you know, and, and did community service and. You know, I met lots of kids that were doing community service at the time, so that was great. My network grew. And so that was sort of the standard thing and, and had been going on that way since the 70s. Uh, as time progressed, as we went from the 80s into the 90s into the 2000s, they approached the penalties very differently. They got harder and stricter. The fines increased. The, you know, the penalties increased. Uh, the the statutes changed. It went from this type of misdemeanor to a more severe type of misdemeanor to felonies and cases got formed. Uh, you know, they started putting together cases like a detective would. And so they would keep a dossier on each artist. And so, you know, when, the, you know, the late 80s, you know, one of my writing partners, J.A., had a big case. Uh, Smith had a big case. And so, you know, they were sued by the city for a million dollars and, you know, for all this stuff. And so it was it was being treated as a a crime against the city. It was uh, sort of they called it a quality of life crime. But they but they turned up that quality of life crime because the quality of life crimes were sort of panhandle or window washing or or maybe, you know, some kind of vandalism. Uh, this was not that. This sort of escalated to another level when they started to pull in uh, sort of these uh, ramped up accounting practices. And, and by that I mean, if you painted a train today, it would cost a $25 an hour worker about an hour to clean the train off. Maybe it would be two people, you know, so that's, you know, $50 worth of, of man hours. 
they might use you know three dollars versus of, of cleaning solvent and water and you know a ten dollar hose and so it totally might cost if you inflate it a bit a hundred dollars to clean well in their accounting that's not what shows up sure. they show up all these inflated figures and actually it goes beyond a thousand dollars so that they could classify it as a felony to get it on your permanent record to try to ruin someone's you know life or career or whatever you know to make someone have a, a permanent criminal record and so the reason why i know this is because when they finally uh arrested me and charged me with you know this kind of dossier dossier kind of a crime uh in 2006 2007 i saw and my lawyers saw those numbers changed every time it went from one office to the next they sort of uh, added a thousand dollars or added two thousand dollars for no reason other than you know inflation to inflate these numbers to to cause more type of a a damaging uh, point of view uh, in the in front of the judge yeah. or for the prosecutor so you know that sort of inflation you if you see something that says ten thousands of dollars of damage or hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage uh, it causes a, a stir it causes you know this this um, this concept of some real serious crime or some really serious damage but when in fact it was maybe hundreds of dollars uh, but if it came across a judge's uh, desk uh, or stand as hundreds of dollars, he would probably just dismiss it and say, hey, all right, get out of here. Like, this is nonsense. You know, like, what are you even doing here? And so that's what's happened. And, and you know, in my particular case, when I had to fight those kind of charges, I was able to fight those charges. I was able to hold out and argue and have lawyers argue and show the judge the folly of the accounting and of the presumption of damage, even using the, the language is totally off. No one is damaging a train when they paint a train. They're just adding a layer of color. Right. Right. They are altering. Yeah. There is no damage. Right. You know, um, the train doesn't get knocked over when I paint it. Right. It doesn't go out of service and get destroyed. I don't melt it. No one melts the train when we add the burners to it. Yeah. Right. And so the judge understood those arguments and of course agreed because it's preposterous. This sort of, Yo, you should have been the lawyer. Language. You should have been the lawyer for a lot of these cats then, you know, I had to unfortunately instruct these lawyers because these lawyers didn't understand these things. Right. But once I was able to explain these things to the lawyers, they got it. And it was, it was really helpful. The unfortunate thing is when writers would have these cases and not have good lawyers yeah. and not understand how to represent themselves or get scared and immediately cop out and then they would really hurt themselves because they would either owe a lot of money they would stay you know they would go to jail um and so that's what i started to see happen there's been a trend where artists go to prison now for graffiti and so right after my case an artist named Ovi who I had painted with got confronted with the same kind of case didn't have the same lawyer or they had you know evidence against him and he went to jail he went to prison for a year right 
And so that became, that's been more of the trend around the, the country and around the world, artists going to prison for extended periods of time, a year, two years, three years for these, uh, these art crimes that have been inflated only to ruin these, these artists' lives. And it's very unfortunate. It, no, absolutely. Um, Kit, you, your, your practice evolved, of course, uh, once the trains were, you, you, you know, you evolved your practice outside of the trains. Um, and, and, and continue to, how, how has that, I mean, you, you not only have, if I'm not mistaken, have continued to, you know, bomb and, and practice style writing, but you've also taken your practice into the studio and into other spaces. This is an evolving process and practice for you over these years. Um, it's, you were forced in some ways to, to evolve. Um, yes, and, and and so I guess now you know so many years in, how is your practice and process evolving now as as a as a writer? I think that that um, you know over the years I've had to evolve or change uh, as a reaction to public policy, as a reaction to public perception, perhaps. Um, as a reaction to life circumstances, you know, becoming a parent, you know, and, and all that kind of stuff. But my personal artistic practice has changed. I, you know, for a long time, I, I refused to call myself an artist. I was a vandal. I love the term vandal because the term vandal to me connotated a, a form of resistance to the status quo, to the system of capitalism of property rights and of of property over people and so i still love that attitude because i see the value of people's lives more than i see the value of property you know and so some people would say well maybe you're a communist you know or you're an anarchist or something and i, and I love all those labels because they're great all those things are really positive things to to say they've just been sort of warped in the american conscience or an American public. But what what I have had to, you know, what I've done is, you know, as I've gone older, is I've had to sort of figure out a way to make a living for myself and sort of adapt to the realities of an adult life. And bombing trains uh, was never something that I did to make a living. It was something that I did to make a statement and to enjoy myself and to, and to have fun and to participate in the urban experience. Um, and so as I entered into the workforce, I found ways to sort of pull my love for the writing movement in. And that became through publishing. And so I became a writer uh, slash publisher. Um, you know, I became a creative director, you know, slash writer. You know, like I, I adapted myself to the conditions and to the opportunities that presented itself to me as a as a you know working professional uh and then i and i learned i became a marketer you know and and a lot of the things that i learned or that i that i used were things that i learned in the street as a writer and i just applied those sort of street practices into uh, business practices, you know, and you know, and I went to school and I was trained in communication and different things like that. So I used all those things and put them together with the writing, uh, 
movement and my love for style writing and my love for bombing and my love for being a vandal and sort of you know made it work for myself all during that time i never considered myself an artist mm. i just considered myself a writer i felt that the the term writer allowed me to be able to be a vandal and an artist it was sort of an in-between name or an in-between uh label and so I still consider myself a vandal, artist, writer, kind of all of those things. Um, I think that the resistance to, uh, for me as, as, a, as a person to, to, I guess, uh, accept the artist label when I was much younger, I think had to do with me not understanding what it meant to be an artist and thinking that artists needed to be classically trained or that artists needed to only exist within a gallery space or to only that you can only be an artist if you had you know like an mfa or something and so uh, most of us rejected it because most of us were self-taught most of us weren't doing any kind of art for any kind of social acceptance uh we weren't creating art for for sale you know, we were creating illegal outlaw art. And so uh, we didn't understand that that was also art. It was just, you know, clandestine or outlaw or unsanctioned or whatever people like to call it now. I've heard unsanctioned art, you know. And so that's cool. It's unsanctioned. I love it. And so, um, but we sanction it. We we approve it. Right. right? So it's maybe right. not unsanctioned because I totally sanction it. Right. <laughs> yeah. And so... You know, for me, it's, I, I've grown and, 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 and learned, you know, different theories and different ideas and, and talked to my elders and different folks that have gone through this struggle and this challenge of, of, of identity, of self-identity. And, and, you know, I think of people like Phase 2, as an example, who was uh, maybe a de facto mentor to me yeah. and and definitely somebody that I looked up to and I enjoyed working with him yeah. uh, in the 90s when I did. And he was militant about this thing. He was militant about being recognized as an artist or a writer. And, and he was unapologetic about it being illegal or not legal. It didn't matter. That, was, that did not define our, our actions. It did not define the worth of the work or of the person or of the artist. It didn't matter. You know, and so today I, I I get it and I understand it. And the museum also, you know, me championing this movement in the museum, I get it. Just because that burner was done over there illegally doesn't make it any less valuable than this studio piece that was painted by whoever it is. Those are two pieces of art. Illegal, not, we're not talking about that. We're talking about the artistic quality of the work. We're talking about the art, the, the impetus of the person to create this thing let's start there yeah you know yeah and so you know i love that there are a few of us radical people that see this thing a little bit different than the cookie cutter uh, you know ways that that people have been trained to see this and that as a result uh of the work that we're doing that we're bringing different perspectives 
into spaces that haven't allowed us to be in. Yeah. And so that's the work that, that I do at the museum as a professional now, as a, the, the, the extension of the work that I do. And I guess a long way to answer your question, my practice has changed of one being very much driven by my own ego and my own sense of showing off and, and that to one of being more about community and community engagement and and uh, and showing this art movement and explaining and more of a role of an educator and a perhaps spokesperson to a degree or champion maybe for this movement so that one this movement is not forgotten two this movement is is properly understood in all its dimensions and three so that it gets the respect that it should be getting and that it should have been getting all along yeah no man you're you're the honestly it's it's you're the perfect advocate and the perfect person to create a museum of this vandal art um you know for a museum of graffiti and uh, i'm just grateful man i'm grateful for for all the gems also you know rest in peace phase two um uh you know and 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 just i i thank you for your time man um how can people be in tune with what the museum is doing with what you're doing? Sure. So we're very easy to find. Our website is museumofgraffiti.com. On there, you can see some of our programming, our address. If you want to ever come and visit, uh, you'll get to see you know some of the exhibitions that we've launched. There's virtual exhibitions on there, so many people can't visit us. Uh, today because of covid or because they're in different cities but we have many of our exhibitions on there and so you can walk around in these virtual rooms and see the artwork of shoe from amsterdam or cess from the bronx uh so we have that we also have our instagram account so we're you know contributing and participating in this whole social media world and so on instagram we are very active we post a lot of content on there. We do uh, art talks, much like this, uh, with, with uh, either myself hosting it or Mayor 139 yeah. hosting it. We've probably done uh, at least 100 that you could see. They're on there right now. We're on YouTube as well as museumofgraffiti.com where some of those talks also live. And so you can engage us like that. You can visit us. You can buy a membership. You can learn from us. You can... You know, we, we are unlike or maybe like other museums, we offer uh, a gift shop with lots of books and really cool stuff from artists. And so we specialize in this movement. So from books to prints to merch, all things created, you know, for artists to support us as a museum and, of course, to support themselves as working artists. And so, yeah, so we're online and, uh, and we're also physical. We're in the physical world uh, in Wynwood, in Miami. Our doors are open. We're open every single day but Tuesday. So if anybody wants to come and brave COVID in Miami, we're good. We'll take care of you. We'll, we'll spray you down uh, so that you can have clean hands. And we will uh, gladly greet you in person. And for those that make it down here, but for some reason they come late at night touring around, uh, or they don't want to enter into an establishment. Our museum is an inside and outside museum. We have 17 murals on the outside that we've commissioned, uh, and you can see them without having to go inside the museum. And they're works from 
uh, Wayne and Persuade and Shu and Ernie and, and you know, all kinds of artists from all over the world. John One. Uh, and so they're incredible walls, as good as anything in the Windward Walls, but you don't have to go in. The Windward Walls, by the way, has been closed since March. Oh, wow. And it's still closed. And so people come to Windward. You can see four of the Windward Walls murals from the outside since it's a, a mural park. Um, you, so when they're closed, you can only see four. You can still see all our 17. Mm. And so I think that we're winning in, in what we're doing by by contributing artwork that's open to the community, whether we're open or not. Yeah. So we, we hope to see you down here. Uh, we hope that your listeners can visit us down here in Miami. Uh, our crew here, our staff works very hard to deliver a, a great experience um, consistently. So we hope that you guys will come down and see us. Yeah, absolutely, man. Once all, once all this is over, I, I, I get to Miami a bunch and uh, I will, I, I can't wait to be there. And uh, I'm, I'm just very grateful for your time, man. Alan Kett of the Museum of Graffiti. Thank you, fam. I, I really appreciate the conversation. My pleasure. Thank you so much. Shout out our super producer, DJ Cashera. Big up boss man, Todd Manley. Thank you to our official corner store photog, Mercedes Zapata. Salutes to the snack door, Max. Also, please, y'all, follow our Instagram. It's corner underscore pod on IG, on Twitter. Tell us who you want to see in the corner store. And also, please consider dropping a couple of dollars into our Patreon account. It's patreon.com corner store underscore pod. The corner store is brought to you by Stolen Spirits.